Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Following the conclusion of the uh, Federal Reserve Open Market Committee meeting today, the uh, central bank will issue a rate decision, a policy statement, and updated forecasts on the economy and the path of interest rates. That'll take place at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. That will be covered live right here on Bloomberg. And Jerome Powell, the uh, chairman of the Federal Reserve, will uh, have his first press conference. That begins at uh, half past two, also covered here live on Bloomberg. And uh, Surely, one gentleman who will be listening and watching all of this is Kamal Shri Kumar. He is the president and the founder of Shri Kumar Global Strategies, and he joins us now. Uh, Shri, thank you very much uh, for being with us. Uh, and also, I should mention that you are a global a Bloomberg prophet, and uh, you can be followed on Twitter at uh, Shri K Global. Um, can you tell us what is going to be uh, the most important thing for you uh, as uh, regards today's events uh, and the Federal Reserve? Tim, those are great and timely questions. First of all, I don't think there is any surprise in terms of a quarter point hike. Um, if he really wanted to shock the market, Chairman Powell can do a one of two things, maybe both things. First, if you, if you have a totally unexpected 50 point basis point hike, that would shock the market, both the bond market and the equity market immediately. The second way to do it is to give an extremely optimistic view of economic growth ahead, his expectations that inflation is likely to quickly go to the 2% Fed target and go beyond. And that, in turn, would suggest four or even higher number of rate hikes during the year. My expectation is we are going to stay pretty pedestrian in terms of what the chairman would say, a 25 basis point hike. I'm not too optimistic in terms of a view because he cannot afford to shock the equity market into a big swoon soon after his speech. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because uh, the Fed has had a party line of not wanting to disrupt markets pretty steadily uh, for the past number of years. But Sri, I'm wondering how much politics is starting to weigh on Fed decisions. We have a uh, an administration that is cutting taxes, which should give a boost to the U.S. economy. Uh, the Jay Powell could halt if he raises rates too quickly. How much is this going to weigh on the decision? Lisa, there are two ways in which the politics enters here. First of all, as you said, the, do we have a big stimulus as a result of the tax package? And if you'll recall what happened after the quantitative easing program of then-Fed Chairman Bernanke at the end of 2008, it was expected to boost prices substantially, interest rates were going to rise, neither of which happened. And I've been saying consistently that monetary growth does not mean that inflation immediately picks up and that rates would go up. I think you're going to have a similar reaction now to the fiscal stimulus, although the stimulus has helped the equity markets, just as quantitative easing did. 
I don't think it is putting money into the hands of people who would actually spend it. It is going more into the hands of equity investors who are higher income groups, and they typically tend to be more of savers and investors rather than spenders. Wages have not increased significantly. We saw that also in the most recent wage news. Retail sales have fallen recently. This was, again, uh, contrary to expectations. I don't see where all the growth optimism is coming from. Sri, what would you like to ask uh, Jerome Powell if you were in the room during the press conference? I would ask him the second question, uh, Pim, that comes forth as a result of Lisa's point, which is, um, are you going to be influenced by President Trump and Secretary Mnuchin in terms of future rate hikes? Clearly, the president has said several times that he would prefer a weak dollar. Uh, He has also indicated that, uh, given his business background, he prefers low interest rates. And we have a history in uh, the U.S. monetary policy, Pim, where presidents time and time again have interfered with the Fed policy. The Fed has hardly been independent. The question is, is Powell going to be different? Is he going to stand up to all the job owning that's almost certain to take place? Shri, I, I was I thought it was compelling what you said that the optimism about the U.S. economy was overdone in your uh, in your view. I wanted to talk a little bit about that and another perspective of yours, which is that Treasuries hold value right now, uh, perhaps even more so than equities. Can you explain? The reason for Treasuries are coming out to be more attractive, Lisa, is because Treasury yields are basically dependent on two factors, inflationary expectations and economic growth expectations. If you have a continuation of the first quarter poor growth that we are going to have, about 1.8% according to the Atlanta Fed, even if it goes up to 2 to 2.5% in subsequent quarters, you're going to fall way short of 3%. And as I said, I don't expect the fiscal stimulus to be helpful for the economy as to the financial market. The second part of it is the expectation on inflation. We have not seen that go up, and I thought the bound market panic in early February was a false alarm, and it was quickly reversed, and we saw the bond yields come down from the highs we reached earlier in the year. Were you you buying? I would be buying, yes. Did you buy back in February? Uh, in terms of, again, I'm not uh, specifically an investor in terms of the moves that I make every time, Lisa, because I'm not a short-term trader. But I think clearly in terms of long-term expectations, my investments are, uh, are, are built that way. Sri, do you believe that we have entered an era of trade wars and tariffs? I think we have. I think it's already started, Pim. If you look at what happened so far on the exports of soybeans, which, by the way, is as important an export as aircraft for U.S. exports to China, China has increased the restrictions on the quality that will be accepted in terms of U.S. soybeans going to China. And that essentially is a form of a tariff. It's a form of trade restriction. And if, in fact, the, the president imposes a tariff of $60 billion as much as this, as early as this Friday, as has been rumored, You can expect a retaliation even by Saturday, Sunday, in terms of what the Chinese would do. And I think you're going to, that is where I think the big risk to economic growth lies. And if that happens, going back to Lisa's question, the fixed income or high, uh, the yield and treasuries is where you want to hide. 
And just uh, real quick, I'm looking at a 30-year yield right now, 3.126. Where do you see it going by the end of this year? Uh, 3.126, I would see, uh, again, going down by anywhere from 30 to 50 basis points. And if at the same time uh, you have a correction in equities, it makes a 30-year even more attractive. That's a really interesting call. Thank you so much for being with us. We always enjoy it. Kamal Shri Kumar, president and founder of Shri Kumar Global Strategies, also a Bloomberg profit. Uh, perhaps he is recommending people hide out in treasuries uh, while growth uh, expectations start to decline. But he is hiding out in Santa Monica, California, away from the snowstorm here in New York City. Twitter and Facebook, as well as other social media platforms, have been uh, hit by a variety of uh, investigations. Uh, And this has to do, of course, with the information that people are voluntarily offering uh, to these organizations. Here to help us understand all this is Jim Anderson. He is the chief executive of Social Flow. And in full disclosure, Social Flow is a platform that is used by Bloomberg for social media purposes. Jim Anderson, thank you very much for being here. Here in our 1130 studios. How does this kind of data mining work? Or maybe it's better to say, how does it differ from data mining that we hear about when it comes to things like the preference that you might have or the kind of detergent that your family uses or the kinds of news that you're interested in reading about? Yeah, Pam, thanks for having me. There's a lot to unpack here. So let, let's first start with the fact that Facebook is a social network, right? I mean, we, we get onto Facebook to share and connect uh, with our friends. And so, you know, in many ways, privacy and sharing are diametrically opposed to each other. And, and so we do share a lot of information with Facebook, with our friends on Facebook. Facebook learns a lot about us and exactly what you just said. The commercialization of that is really what's at heart here. I mean, that, that information is quite valuable to advertise who want to sell us shaving cream and laundry detergent and all the kinds of things that we buy. And so that's really the crux of the issue. You take that and you put it at the intersection of some of the most heated political issues of our days, the presidential election, uh, potential Russian interference, and and you get, I I think, the maelstrom that we've got right now. Well, but Jim, is there a difference between the data that you willingly share with your friends, whether it's pictures of your kids or what party you've gone to, and uh, having data scraped from your emails from other systems systems that you've been using that are not social media, that are not uh, public platforms, and using that for, uh, say, political advertisements. Yes, there. I think there is a difference, although to be clear, and we're all speculating here about what may or may not have happened, and I wasn't there, so I don't know what Cambridge Analytica did, but what has been reported is that they uh, sort of unauthorized uh, it took information about people's friends. So it wasn't so much that they scraped it from their email, it's that they did something they weren't supposed to according to Facebook's policies. And, and then the logical question that everybody's asking is, well, Facebook, you had those policies and you knew that some people might not comply with them. What was your obligation to make sure that Cambridge Analytica or anybody else complied with what they were supposed to do? And so that's what I think we're really talking about is your your not only your information, but your friends information and your friends never consented to have them uh, do that. So let's say it's not uh, scraping or it's not a matter of scraping data from other sites. Let's say it's just the information that people put out there about themselves on Facebook. Do you know anybody who's been up set by 
disclosure of information that they have put out there publicly. Uh, certainly. We all know people who've been upset. I mean, it, this is a very uh, emotional issue for a lot of people. Privacy. Uh, you start talking about people's families and their kids. You know, my kids' information is on Facebook. And, and all of us, I think, I'm a parent, all of us who have kids wrestle with that kind of question just by default. How much information do you put about your children out? I mean, it's, it's one thing for your friends and family uh, to know about your children. It's quite another for some anonymous third party to have taken that information through no action of my own. But maybe one of my friends down loaded one of their apps and suddenly now they know things about me, my family and my kids. I think that's why you see such a emotion here is, is that information th that you put out there wasn't being done with the expectation that it would be, be used for marketing or, or even political purposes. Now, this is not the first time, though, that Facebook has had to deal with issues related to what many describe as being genuine news or information that is available via their website. They've had a program, I believe, that really affected a lot of what is called independent journalism in many smaller countries, such as Guatemala and Sri Lanka. You're familiar with this. Maybe just yeah. enlighten people a little bit so that they understand that this is not a brand new topic when it comes to Facebook and the information that's shared on their network. Yeah, well, again, there's there's multiple stories and news threads intersecting here, and so we, ha we really have to untangle it. I think what you're referring to is they ran tests in the news feed in these, some of these smaller countries, which, by the way, added up to almost exactly 1.0% of the world's population. So you could understand from a, a testing standpoint, they wanted to experiment with the news feeds of, of people in you know 1.0% of the world's population, which probably correlates to 1.0% of Facebook users around the world. And they're trying to understand how people interact with content in their news feed. And so the implication of that and the, and the outcry was, wow, you have severely severely disadvantaged the, the legitimate news media in those countries by doing your experiment. You know, never mind what you think you might have been able to accomplish or learn the experiment. Right. Did you really think through the implications of, of what that was going to do to journalism and to news outlets in those countries? And I, I think the answer that Facebook uh, said itself is, well, no, we didn't really think through that and we didn't intend to do that. And, and so we'll, we'll stop doing that and we, our experiment is done. Uh, I just wanted to bring to the news that Mark Zuckerberg, the head of, of Facebook, will address the public in the next 24 hours uh, aimed at regaining trust. This, uh, according to Bloomberg News' Sarah Fryer, she just confirmed this. What do you hope to hear from Mark Zuckerberg? Well, I think uh, I, me and everybody hopes to hear a, a clear explanation of Facebook's position on this. And in and, and, and all fairness, as an objective uh, you know, observer trying to be as objective as I can, it is a very complicated issue, right? Again, I said uh, right at the, at the top of this, uh, you know, Facebook is a social network, right? We put, we put information out there. Every single Facebook post has a share button on it, even today. And so sharing is built into the core of the platform. So how does he and how does Facebook more broadly view sharing versus privacy? And how do they plan to reconcile those really quite contradictory uh, perspectives? And I think that's what everybody wants to hear. Jim Anderson, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Jim Anderson, Chief Executive Officer of Social Flow in New York. Uh, to be fully disclosed here, Social Flow is a platform used by Bloomberg for social media purposes. And it is confirmed that we will be hearing from the previously absent or up till now absent Mark Zuckerberg about Facebook's response to uh, this data breach and their path forward.
Tesla may be the poster child for this era, a company that burns through cash yet has promise of technological prowess that has excited the imaginations of many out there. The true story of this company, however, may lie with its credit. And here to join us is Joel Levington, senior credit analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, you've been digging into Tesla's credit, an interesting concept, this company borrowing to burn cash. Um, this perhaps is the true story, and what is it telling us? Well, I think what it's telling us is that uh, the company will continue to invest much like an Amazon did in trying to build out its optionality. And as it does that, it needs low-cost financing, and that's becoming more and more challenging, which will make their drivers difficult and will also make uh, the ability to, for, that, for their bonds to perform well. Joe, what kind of uh, collateral uh, would be valuable to an investor here? Well, uh, everybody loves uh, receivables, and uh, and it has a tremendous brand name. And so uh, I think that's the concern, is that uh, this past uh, summer they issued uh, a billion eight of debt, uh, which is unsecured. And as that bond has lagged, uh, it makes it harder to finance. So a cheaper way of doing it would be secured debt, which would prime the current debt. In other words, it would push it down in the capital structure uh, and make it worth, uh, make it less valuable. Well, if it makes it less valuable, uh, then what's the likelihood that unless they get these issues resolved, that they can continue to go back to the market to borrow more money? Well, that's that's the the, the chicken and the egg game. Uh, obviously, they could go out and issue equity. It's not as, as if their equity has a low valuation on it, or they can use convertibles. Uh, I think what's interesting is that what they said on their last call is that uh, you know that they can they could see cash flow becoming much stronger over the next couple of years. And if they really believe that, using something like bank debt makes a lot more sense than going out and issuing more unsecured debt or giving away your, uh, or giving away, uh, your equity. So uh, Tesla has about $8.5 billion of debt currently. Uh, they burn through more than a billion dollars per quarter to sustain itself. They've clearly had a lot of issues with respect to production snafus. Uh, They're currently contemplating, or shareholders are anyway, awarding Elon Musk a $2.6 billion compensation package. Just how much more do they have to borrow? And what happens if they can't? I mean, is that basically game over? Uh, well, uh, I, I don't think it'll be a question of, of if they can or they can't. I think they will be able to borrow uh, they are a $54 billion uh, cap company. Uh, it becomes how will they finance uh, and how much they'll need to finance, Lisa. And I think uh, at least for 2018, our uh, model that we have on the terminal uh, shows that uh, it should be about $2.5 billion that, they would, that they'll be cash negative this year. So if they want to keep their liquidity consistent, uh, they would need to you know, issue about $2.5 billion worth of, of new debt. Uh, you know, it, it does it beg the question, though, that if you were going to be asked to do a, a leverage buyout with a company like this or take it private, could you do it based on the financials as they currently exist? Uh, that's a great question, Tim. And I think the short answer is no. Uh, the company, at least again, like the way that we look at it, uh, if they finance that two and a half billion dollar shortfall this year with debt, they'll be levered at 11 times. So they already look like an extremely uh, levered LBO <laughs> prior to going private. Uh, so I don't really think that that would be a mechanism uh, uh, that would be doable in any way. 
So you talked about how it would be more attractive for them to issue in the bank debt space. This is the leveraged loan market. And I'm wondering, perhaps from Tesla's point of view, it's more attractive. What about from an investor's standpoint? Would you recommend, and I know you can't recommend, so you're going to totally uh, punt on this, but uh, you know, are investors adequately compensated? At what point are they adequately compensated with yield for buying uh, something like that to uh, finance this cash-burning car company? Sure. Well, what I would say is that if you look at the triple C um, leveraged loan market, uh, if, if you look, and you look at similar dates to what they have in terms of their 2025 bond issue, uh, those uh, secured bank debt financings tend to run between 100 and 125 basis points cheaper uh, or tighter than what you would get in the unsecured market. And so that would be the cost savings to the company. Uh, I think the other component of it becomes that with bank debt, you can repay it quickly. So if they do believe that they're going to be cash flow positive uh, towards 2019, that would give them the optionality of paying down that debt without having any sort of call provision or feature in it, uh, which is different than a bond. Uh, which, again, it would, if I was sending in the treasurer seat over at Tesla, those are the kinds of things that I would be thinking about in how to reduce the cost uh, in terms of financing. I was going to say, would you, would you be interested in reducing the cost of the $2.6 billion compensation package that they're going to be voting on? Yeah, well, uh, you know, I'm a credit guy. I'm not. <laughs> so the credit guy says, no way. Do you expect them to get uh, downgraded? Because I think that they're rated in the single B area at this point. Yeah, let me just add on, uh, Pim, that I hope that you, Lisa, and I can all get a, a compensation package similar to that. Um, Thank you, and, But in terms, in terms of the ratings, uh, I do think that there is a big risk that they uh, get downgraded this year. Uh, they will not meet rater expectations. And the reason that that is important is because as a triple C bond, uh, which is where the 2025 issue would go, those bonds uh, at similar maturities trade about 70 basis points tight, uh, 70 basis points wider than where the Tesla bond is. That's worth about three points on a $92.5 bond um, to just try to frame what that risk might look like. Well done. Thanks very much for enlightening us. Joel Levington is our senior credit analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence uh, discussing the, uh, I don't know, it's a debt picture it seems it's it's, a, it's another word burning, at this point. A cash, cash burning, burning picture, picture at tesla New rules from the Department of Labor having to do with tip sharing. And this, uh, of course, affecting the uh, restaurant industry. Let's bring in Ben Penn. He's a labor reporter for Bloomberg Law, joining us from Arlington, Virginia. Uh, ben, just lay out for people that are not familiar with what is the, the current regulatory environment when it comes to tips and what does the Labor Department have to say about this? Sure. So in 2011, the Obama Department of Labor issued a regulation that stated what was what the department intended to be uh, clarifying its longstanding policy that employees own the tips that they receive and that managers can't skim those tips. Now, what happened uh, last December is the department issued a new rule proposal to reverse that uh, 2011 rule. And uh, that proposal, um, the intention behind it is to allow restaurants to uh, impose 
tip-sharing arrangements in which the front-of-house workers like servers and bartenders who directly earn tips can share those tips with uh, the back-of-house kitchen workers. Um, however, the uh, issue that's uh, really caused quite a bit of contention is that the rule does not expressly forbid managers from taking a part in the tip pool themselves, and uh, that's, uh, that's what's happening. And, uh, the, of course, this only, the controversy only escalated when I reported last month that the department had conducted an internal analysis showing that $640 million per year in tips could be transferred to uh, businesses as a result of the rule and that they uh, deleted that, per, that analysis from the proposal. And uh, now the next, uh, the next word is, uh, that I reported today is how they went about getting approval to do that. And basically uh, what you were reporting is that they didn't disclose certain data, correct? Correct. They stated instead under the, uh, the, the regulatory impact analysis section of the rule that at this point uh, the department's unable to quantify the uh, transfer costs to businesses and uh, or the transfer costs from workers to businesses and they asked the public input to inform the analysis that would be included in the final stage of the rule. Ben, why do you believe or what have you learned about the background as to why the Department of Labor would do this? Well, there are certainly a number of interesting theories. I think uh, what we do know for sure is what the Secretary of Labor, Alex Acosta, said last uh, earlier this month when he was testifying on Capitol Hill, that he believes that the uh, department, even though it made an attempt to quantify uh, the data at the proposed rule stage, that there were assumptions in that proposal that he disagreed with that he thought would be misleading to release to the public. And, uh, and that's why they felt instead it would be best to solicit public input that would then inform a more reliable estimate in the final rule. Right. Of course, um, th there's plenty of pushback there saying that uh, they saw a number. In fact, I had reported that the original estimates compiled internally projected it would be in the billions before um, political leadership kept asking for new methodologies that gradually lessened the anticipated impact and now, uh, as I reported today, down to $640 million. So um, they're getting accused now of, uh, you know, seeing the numbers that they don't like, wanting to uh, hide that from the public. Um, and uh, so, the, you know, you take your pick of which is the more plausible theory. So, but I want, to, I want to just get your perspective on what the economic reason would be behind forcing uh, employees in the service industry to share their tips and sort of why uh, the Department of Labor would want this. Sure. The uh, Department of Labor and the restaurant Association, which is a big supporter of this rule, has uh, they both stated that what this would accomplish is it would improve the uh, the workplace camaraderie because you have uh, employees in the front of house uh, and workers in the back of house who are all working. Uh, you know, in a community to improve the customer experience, and why not allow everyone who uh, plays a role in that process to to benefit from it? And uh, so that's you know that's the stated um, benefit of the rule. Now, where it gets interesting is that uh, front of house workers do not make the full minimum wage. Typically, they earn as low as two thirteen per hour, provided that their uh, tips combined with their uh, hourly wage equal the full minimum wage of at least 7.25 per hour whereas workers in the back of house typically don't earn as much and uh, they get paid the full minimum wage but frequently not that much more than it so 
you know, this is another stated uh, benefit of the rules that this would allow cooks and dishwashers to make more money. And of course, then the criticism is that uh, why aren't the businesses themselves uh, um, giving those workers a raise? So real quick, the opponents, I assume, are the uh, front office or the front of house service workers, no? Yeah, well, I I think it really depends on the uh, on the business. I've heard that there are, there are some restaurants where workers would be happy to uh, to take part in a tip pool at the back of house. Of course, provided that they are uh, paid a full minimum wage, and you know, in some states now that full minimum wage can be as high as getting close to fifteen dollars per hour. So they would still be able to earn uh, you know a de- decent take home pay. But um, you know, there are other places where they would feel that. Especially if they uh, felt that their um, managers were allowed to skim a portion yeah. of those tips, that this would, you know, this would just force them to move on to a different restaurant. Ben Penn, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, really fascinating, great scoops. Ben Penn, labor reporter for Bloomberg Law, coming to us from Arlington, Virginia. Very controversial, the idea of uh, employees, usually in the service industry, having to share their tips with everybody. Uh, it sort of raises the question of what is the point of tips, which were meant ostensibly to compensate for the quality of that service. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.